This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. On today's episode, we are returning with another ranked episode. This time we are looking at the films of American filmmaker Wes Anderson. The last time we ranked director was back on episode 134, David Fincher Ranked, as we looked forward to his upcoming release of Mank. Wes Anderson got his start back in 1994 when he made a short film called Bottle Rocket that co-starred two University of Texas friends, Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson. The short screened at Cannes and was later made into a feature film. To learn more about the making of this short and the feature, check out the Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman season of You Must Remember This. With the release of his 10th film, The French Dispatch, we figured it was time to rank all 10 of Wes Anderson's movies from worst to best and give out our own awards. Joining me on this adventure is Stephanie Pryor, the world's foremost Wes Anderson fan. She was last heard on episode 162, Vancouver Queer Film Festival. How are you doing today, Steph? Hi, I'm good. I didn't realize I was the foremost fan of Wes Anderson. Of course. Who else would I go to? <laughs> you're you're the one that wants to like decorate their uh, yes. their room with like the Wes Anderson wallpaper and stuff like that. <laughs> is is that not accurate? This is true. Yes, I I, I want every room to have some Wes Anderson feel to it. Unfortunately, to you haven't been there, haven't done that yet. Pastel pink and twee. Yes, very twee. <laughs> All right, I guess before we get started, what was your introduction to Wes Anderson and, and how did you grow to be a fan of his? So it was actually you who introduced me to Wes Anderson. You were talking about this director who had a new movie coming out called Moonrise Kingdom. And you said, you'll really like it. Come watch it. Come see it with me. So we went and I loved it and was hooked and had to see everything that he did beforehand and looked forward to every film he came out with since then. So um, I never looked back from that moment. That's good to hear. Uh, I'm glad I was such a positive influence on you then. Yeah. For me, it was, I believe it was Life Aquatic where I had rented the DVD from Blockbuster and I watched it with my parents and they're like, this is stupid. This is not funny at all. What is this? And I was like, this is the most intriguing movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I watched it, I think, alone afterwards. I was like, I love this movie. Uh, and it'll be a bit of a recurring theme. I love The Life Aquatic. Uh, I guess it on, please watch this. And we talked about The Life Aquatic. I've got several posters about it. I've got t-shirts. Yep. I've seen Sui George playing his David Bowie songs live. I love The Life Aquatic. And that will definitely come up later on. But That's besides the point. What we're going to do is, like I said at the beginning, we're going to rank all 10 of his films. We're going to talk about what we like, what we don't like, things like that. Why is it work? And at the very end, as we always do on these ranked episodes, give out our own rewards. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, let's get into it. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. Coming in in 10th place as our least favorite film is unfortunately his newest, The French Dispatch, which came out just this year. It was supposed to come out last year, got pushed back, came Mm -hmm. out this year. Mm -hmm. 
And the description is, a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. This is his most unique film in the sense of it is a series of vignettes, basically. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Bill Murray, who plays this editor of this American newspaper that is based out in France that has a French dispatch location. Yeah. Um, in Ennui sur Blase, which means apathy under boredom, I believe is, <laughs> is the English translation, which <laughs> describes a lot of Anderson's films. Yes, yeah, true. Uh, and it's basically an issue of this magazine. And so it kind of takes you around and, and each of the, the segments has a narrator that is one of the writers of that and they kind of like are basically reading out their story that they wrote for this specific issue of the French Dispatch. And it didn't work for either of us. No, yeah, I didn't care for it. And I didn't want to jump to my final conclusion about it after first watching it. Um, and I wanted to let it kind of sync with me. But even the more I think about it, the more it just didn't didn't work for me. I thought the pacing was kind of off. I thought there were some stories that took too long to like, they were just too long to get to the end. And yeah, I just, it, it wasn't my favorite. It's tough because it's basically four vignettes, but three of them are really long. And then one of them is really short. So short. Yeah. So I almost wonder if it would be better if they had a couple more shorter ones thrown in there. So like it starts out with this Owen Wilson vignette where he's, Basically just describing the town yeah. that they're in. So I liked this one. I thought it was really fun. I loved the like visual way that it played out. And it felt kind of like um, New Yorker illustration-esque to me. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of really funny the way he was describing the city as he was biking through it. And I really liked it. And it just like ended so abruptly. I was like, oh, okay, that's it. Yeah. And then and then that was the only short little one we got and it was very uh Moonrise no I'm sorry it was a very Grand Budapest hotel. And mm-hmm. you know you know the, the chase sequences in Grand Budapest it was it was so manufactured and I mean that in a, in a good way in the sense of like you could very very much tell that that's not a real set it's all done on a sound stage. It's you know uh a little over the top in some of the movements and things like that but it works for that. Yeah, like a theater production kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then we get three much more in-depth vignettes where it's basically it, it's the writer describing it and then it plays out. So in contrast where you have Owen Wilson basically biking through and narrating the things that he's writing about and these other ones you actually get to see how it played out mm-hmm. with the writer removed from it all. It starts out with this one about uh, an artist who lives in a insane asylum played by Benicio del Toro, um, who gets discovered by another inmate played by Adrian Brody, who's an art dealer. And, but we have Tilda Swinton, who is the writer of this report, basically giving a conference talking about her article where, the importance of this artist played by Benicio del Toro. And then we kind of get to see uh, how that all played out of how Benicio del Toro became a a world famous artist because of his relationship with Adrian Brody. 
Yeah, this one I thought was too long. Uh, there were some really good moments in it, and I think Adrian Brody and um, shoot, now I'm blanking their names. The Fawns, Henry Winkler, yeah, and Bob Balaban, Bob Balaban were great <laughs> together. Like the, those scenes were my favorite part of this particular vignette, and uh, but the rest of it was just so so for me. It's funny, it's going to come up again, but every time. Adrian Brody is in a Wes Anderson film. It's such a highlight for me. Whereas normally, if I hear Adrian Brody's in a film, that's like an automatic pass for me. Really? Yeah, I, I, I normally, I just don't really care for him. But for some reason, he just so embodies the Wes Anderson spirit so perfectly that I love it. Yeah, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but I think his face is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's actually very similar to like Owen Wilson because they've got this like big kind of like broken nose type feeling and there's something very caricature about their faces and again i don't mean that negatively yeah, i no. just mean it fit, it works so perfectly with anderson's storytelling both of them are sort of like quote unquote attractive men that have weird faces <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how else to describe it like like adrian brody is so tall and lanky and his yeah. face is so long and yeah. his nose is so big and then owen wilson same thing he's got like this very round head and then he's got his very famous broken nose yeah. that just seems to be getting more pronounced as he gets older i don't like it does is that not true like it seems yeah. like it's way more pronounced now no it's true it does and it also seems to be a reoccurring thing in wes anderson movies where his nose gets punched or something like that like yeah. they need to they need to describe why he has a busted up nose <laughs> or like i don't care <laughs> i know who owen wilson is he has yeah. a busted up nose yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and then the what was the, the second segment was one with the third uh, one the, which one sorry the third segment yes yeah, sorry the third segment uh the second big one um but the third one was where Frances McDormand was playing this political writer and she's following these student protests that's led by Timothy Chalamet. And then mm-hmm. she ends up getting into a relationship with him as he's sort of a go between the student group and the, the police force. A lot of it was very unclear what that was all about. Yeah. I'm not even sure what was going on in this one. Um, there was a lot of back and forth and, not a lot of clarity. Mm-hmm. Like, what were they arguing about? Like, it starts out by the, they're talking about it. It was a protest about boys not being allowed in the girls' dorm room. And it's not really explained any more than that mm-hmm. of what that's all about. And then you kind of get a bit of insight when they are talking about how getting drafted into the military. And that's sort of what they're fighting. But that's not really a real through line to it. So I don't. I, I never really got what this whole segment was about, other than France is is very famous for its students being protesters. Yeah, I, that, that's about it. I'm not sure what was going on, and then they seem to be playing chess mm-hmm. with and like trying to come to a solution through playing chess, and then they were taking too long to get, to make their turns then all of them automatically that means that they've lost i don't know it didn't make any sense to me really yeah and, and it just didn't work for me at all um francis mcdormand i said this to you after we watched it francis mcdormand's now been two wes anderson films and i don't think she embodies the wes anderson spirit i love francis mcdormand she's one of my favorite actresses but she just doesn't really fit his milieu i think it's because she's too serious of an actress like I think she's funny in something like Almost Famous, where she's playing a, a very serious, 
you know, controlling mother, but the humor sort of comes from her controlling this, but I don't think she has the type of humor that Wes Anderson normally writes. I actually disagree. I, I like her in both um, films that she's been in of his. I think we'll talk about this later, but I think I really liked her in Moonrise Kingdom. It really worked for me there. And I liked some, she plays this woman who everyone thinks is lonely because she's not with someone. And there's a good moment where Timothy Chalamet says, I see you as someone who's, um, a, what is it now? I'm forgetting what he said. Something about, I see you as someone who's independent, but not, that doesn't mean you're lonely. And she snaps back, exactly. <laughs> and I just thought that was perfect. Yeah. Uh, and then the the last big segment of this was one where Jeffrey Wright plays this writer who is the food critic, I guess, mm-hmm. for the magazine. Mm-hmm. And he is supposed to be doing a story about the chef for a police station. But it ends up being more of a story of a kidnapping. Yeah. And... It, it was it was interesting because I think Jeffrey Wright Jeffrey is such a terrific actor. I so think good. I think every every time he's in something, more and more people really appreciate what he brings to the table. He's he he's never really the flashiest actor, but he's always so good at, at, at bringing to life his characters. And he brought this story to life, but I, it didn't it didn't work for me. Maybe because it, I just didn't care about the story. I I quite liked it. I like how it starts out with him doing like a talk show interview with Leaf Driver. I thought that was really good and well done. And um, and then where he he first goes to have this dinner, and then this like whole plot opens up about the was he the police chief who yeah the police okay. chief's son yeah. his son gets kidnapped and they so they have to go on this like wild chase to get him back and how he's all involved with that. I, I liked the way it played out. I thought Je- uh, Jeffrey was amazing. Um, and then I also liked there's a part in this particular story where it switches over to animation and I really liked the style of animation and it felt super like Saturday morning cartoony mm-hmm. and reminded me of like Tintin. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that I just loved because all, all the the whole chase scene happens in that, and it's really funny the way things are done and the way the camera angle is moving and it kind of makes you really a part of this group going out to to get this um, this guy who's running away, played by Ed Norton. And uh, I really, really liked it. And then at the end, I thought it was really sweet, bittersweet, like how there's a a quote that the chef did and Jeffrey wrote. Right, found it too sad to add into his article, but Bill Murray's like, no, you have to put it in. It's the best part. And it, it's true, but it is sad. And it's just like, I, I don't know. If this one was my favorite of the four. Yeah, for me, my favorite was the, the, the painter one with Benito Del Toro and Adrian Brody. Overall, I think... It was it was a very funny one, and there was a lot of great visual gags. There was some really interesting stuff. One of the things I really liked in the in the Benito del Toro segment was when they were basically creating these tableaus where it was supposed to be showing like a freeze frame of of a bunch of action going on, like people fighting in a restaurant. But you can tell that it was done mm-hmm. live, mm-hmm. and so you could see the people gently kind of moving or trying to hold still things like that. I thought that was very interesting. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, different stuff. It switches between black and white and color and yeah. 
the way it's telling a story and animation and that sort of stuff. And there's some really, really interesting filmmaking techniques going on. For sure. And it was funny, but it just didn't have the heart that I like about most Wes Anderson films. Yeah, agree. And I think there was some really great filmmaking and really great ideas that were part of that particular story. Um, the problem I had with it was one, it felt a little too long, but two, especially for this one in particular, there were, it was black and white. It was color. It was French. It was English subtitles. It was, um, like a fifth, like a divided image. So you were looking at two different images at once, but you were also having to read the subtitles, but you were also supposed to listen to the French and it was white, black and white. It was so much going on my senses were overloaded, didn't know what to listen to, how to read it, how to follow it. And it seemed like too much going on for me in that one. Mm -hmm. All right. So now moving on to our number nine film, and that is bottle rocket, which came out in 1996 and about three friends who plan to pull off a simple robbery and go on the run. That's the bare bones description of it. Mm -hmm. But like I said at the beginning, this was the feature film debut of Wes Anderson. It was based on a short that he had made that starred brothers Owen and Luke Wilson, and they return for this one. Uh, But they don't play brothers in this. Interestingly enough, I noticed throughout Wes Anderson's career, um, none of the Wilson brothers actually play brothers Mm -hmm. because Andrew Wilson also shows up in a couple movies and none of them ever are brothers. They're they're always friends and (laughs) they have other siblings and things like that. So it's very interesting. They look very similar and sound very similar. They're never brothers. Sort of. Luke and Owen look different enough between the blonde and the brown hair. Yeah. Um, And then Andrew kind of splits the difference between the two of them. Yeah. He looks... Looks, he more he looks more like Luke, but sounds a lot like Owen. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so this is this was the, his debut film. So it's very rough around the edges, low budget. It doesn't have a lot of the same hallmarks that we would come to mm-hmm. expect in a Wes Anderson film. Despite the fact that I feel like we still see those flashes yeah. uh, coming through. But uh, Luke Wilson plays a plays a guy who is in an outpatient facility for depression, and when he uh, gets out or gets uh, busted out, as so uh, Owen Wilson thinks uh, he is doing, they decide to rob a bookstore where it is done in hopes of uh, getting the attention of a local crime boss uh, named Mister Henry who is played uh, very interestingly by um, James Caan. And they're trying to get into his gang because Owen Wilson has done jobs with them in the past and and sort of stuff like that. And they decide to do a bigger job of robbing a um, cold packing whatever it is, factory, some sort of thing like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not not very clear. but yeah, so this this is this is a very bare bones one. We see the flashes of what's to come. But yeah, this why why did this end up so so low for you? Yeah, I'll preface this by saying that the the next nine, I asked you if there could be a tie for like second to nine or second to eight, I guess, in terms of my favorites, because I like them all so much and almost so equally. It was really hard for me to distinguish the ranking. So even though this is really low um, in my rankings, I still really quite enjoyed it. I do think that where it falters for me is that this feels like three very distinct stories that happen and they don't, they do connect, but it doesn't feel so co- cohesive to me. There's clearly the beginning where 
um, Owen Wilson gets re- gets released, and then they're they're planning the the heist, and then they do the heist. Then there's the middle portion where they're staying at this motel, and Luke Wilson meets um, Inez, and I I really enjoyed that middle section, and then it just falls off for me completely with the the third act where Luke Wilson's back, he's back on track, but Owen Wilson pulls him in to do this last heist, um, and it just it feels to drag on at that point to me. So I don't really care for that. But one of my favorite parts in this film is when that, that high scene where Owen Wilson first gets out or sorry, Luke Wilson first gets out and him and Owen go and they're, they're robbing this house and it's later you find out that it's Luke Wilson's parents' house. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really funny. And I, I liked how you didn't know that beforehand. And afterwards you're like, that's, that's hilarious. Yeah, that 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 is a, a funny sequence. Yeah, he's it's it's probably his driest film in terms of the humor, where it's not quite a laugh out loud film, but it's still quite funny. But yeah, I, I agree with with what you're saying as far as it being very distinct uh, stories that they're, they're they're working on. That they it feels a little disjointed at times. I I, I did quite like the James Con performance. You know, he's so over the top. He's got like a ponytail. He wears a kimono. He's got like the socks and sandals thing going on. He's a very laid back crime boss, which is so funny because James Conn is is most known for being in The Godfather or the TV show uh, Las Vegas, where he's also not quite a crime guy, but he runs a casino. So he kind of has that like mob boss mentality. He's such a tough guy. Right. And here he's like so laid back and chill. It's, <laughs> it, I, I quite enjoy his performance in this movie. Yeah, he was okay. Like he's, I wouldn't call him chill because he's a prankster. Like he's, what was he like throwing buckets of water over the the building or mm-hmm, something? Mm-hmm. And like, um, and there seemed to be a bit of an edge to him where you knew that if you did something wrong, you didn't want to be in the same room with him. Yes. Yeah. But it was it's it's an okay movie. I this was probably the last one I needed to watch when I, I was you know delving deep into his filmography and I watched it and I was like, oh it's it's fine. And I rewatched it again for this and I was just like, oh, it's fine. Like yeah. if you're a Wes Anderson completist, it's obviously one you really need to watch. But if you're not, you could probably skip this and, and it's not like you're missing anything really crucial in this filmography. That's fair enough. All right, so coming in at number eight, we've got the Grand Budapest Hotel from 2014. A writer encounters the owner of an aging high-class hotel who tells him of his early years serving as a lobby boy in the hotel's glorious years under an exceptional concierge. So this was the movie that really, I think, put Wes Anderson in the mainstream Mm -hmm. world. It was his first time nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, Ray Fine stars as the concierge who uh, who got a, an Oscar nomination himself as well. So it was the one that probably was the, the, the main introduction for people if they hadn't really been following along of his career. This was the probably the, the big one for people to see. And I would probably put it down as maybe the funniest Wes Anderson. The most jokes per minute, the the best one-liners, the, yeah. the best gags, everything like that. Mm-hmm. This is this is bar none probably the funniest movie in his entire filmography. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think this and one other one is the one that I laughed out loud the most just because of, like, like you said, the one-liners and the visual gags and, and the stuff that you saw and heard. But 
With that being said, I think this really struggled in terms of the story and there wasn't a lot, there was a lot that was going on, but it felt slow and also kind of unnecessary, some of the things that were happening. And um, so as a whole, the movie didn't quite work for me as well, but I thought everyone who was in it was amazing. Uh, Ray Fiennes was like hilarious and the perfect casting for this. Um, And yeah, just, I laughed so hard at so many different lines in this one. Yeah, I, I, I would also agree with the statement of like, as far as individual acting performances go, this is probably one of the, the best of, of his films as well. Because, you know, Ray finds a lot, a lot of Wes Anderson's films are ensemble pieces. So there's rarely a singular lead. And I would say that this is one of the few films that has a singular lead. And Ray finds followed very closely with uh, Tony... I always butcher how to say his last name, Tony Revolori, as being the second most prominent person in this film. After that, it's way more cameo-based than anything. You have people Mm -hmm. that pop up for single scenes or sometimes just for a a brief moment. I love F. Murray Abraham. Every time he shows up in anything, I'm always so happy. And he shows up as um, Zero, who is the Tony Revolori character, as an older person. He's so fantastic. I love the opening in this when there's like this seamless transition of Tom Wilkinson, who is this writer describing uh, his book that he wrote about the Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's seamlessly, it's so seamlessly transition, transitions to Jude Law taking over that performance. And it's like literally in the middle of the narration, it's Tom Wilkinson. Yep. And then halfway through, it switches to Jude Law. And at first, you don't even notice it until you're like, hey, this kind of sounds like Jude Law. And then Jude Law pops up. And you're like, yeah, that was Jude Law. Was you're that like, Jude Law the whole time? Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, no, it wasn't. It starts out with Tom Wilkinson. And like they both, they don't have similar voices, but for some reason- yeah. Yeah. The cadence and the flow goes so well because they yeah. both have very distinct voices. Yeah, they do. And and you're right. Like it was a seamless transition. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because like someone like Bill Murray is so associated with uh, Wes Anderson and he shows up in he's in maybe a minute total. He's this uh, a, a concierge at a different hotel and he shows up during this uh, cameo segment where they show a whole bunch of different yeah. concierges. Probably the best, one of the best segments. It's a, it's a great segment where they're all like, they all have this concierge with their lobby boy and they say, you take over Hold for on, me. Take over. <laughs> and they get their lobby boy to take over whatever the task is. That includes things like uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, yeah. uh, putting out a fire, testing, um, testing the food, soup. Yeah. Uh, like there's a few things like that. There's a hilarious and they're all wet. Sanderson regulars and then he shows up at the very end when he marries Zero and the Saoirse Ronan character Agatha uh, but yeah there's there's so many great like this this is probably his most stacked cast I would say as well up until maybe something like the French Dispatch uh, which has become a growing trend with him in the last few years of having these absolute stacked casts because everyone wants to work with him like yeah You've got Jeff Goldblum and Jude Law and Adrian Brody and Willem Dafoe and Bill Murray and Ed Norton and Jason Schwartzman, Sir Sharon, Leigh Sado, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, Owen Wilson, Tony Revolori. Like, I, I just named maybe a quarter of the big cast there. Like, there, there's yeah, so yeah, many yeah. people in that. And, and that's, <laughs> it's funny. I was reading the trivia for the French Dispatch and it's talking about how there's like 11 Oscar winning actors, Oscar winning or nominated actors in that movie. Like what movie can say that they have 11 Oscar winning actors or nominated actors in a movie? Like that's, that's craziness. And the fact that they're, they're so often willing to 
plays such a small bit part, yeah. bit part it's it's pretty great like obviously some of them like adrian brody who's an oscar winner has a, a fairly biggish role as yeah uh as the son of a dead countess who's fighting the state he has a fairly big part and willem dafoe who's an oscar nominated so actor so like amazing it's it's gonna be a common thread and I, and I guess i'll say it now i was gonna save this for for a later pick but I would say it's so interesting to me. Adrian Brody and Willem Dafoe embody the the humor of Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. and Owen Wilson and Bill Murray embody the dramatic side of Wes Anderson so well. Right, and it's yeah. so funny because normally Willem Dafoe and Adrian Brody are known for their serious work, mm-hmm. and Bill Murray and Owen Wilson are known for their comedic work. Yet for some reason they're able to sort of flip sides and portray that aspect of Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say worked or didn't work for you for Grand Budapest? Um, I think just like what I mentioned before, just, there were some scenes that seemed to be kind of drawn out or unnecessary and it seemed to be a long convoluted story also that I just wish was a little bit more concise. There was a lot going on and um, yeah, even though it was so hilarious, the different lines and the different like Willem Dafoe throwing the cat out the window, (laughs) so unexpected and perfect in every way or Jeff Goldblum, um, getting his cat from the coat check <laughs> his dead cat yeah which was hilarious um like there's all these great parts but the sum of all these parts just didn't add up for me yeah it's 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 interesting because i would there's there's aspects of it that just didn't work for me the comedy obviously did it's you know it's so quotable get your hands off my lobby boy yeah like, that's probably the most famous take your hands off my lobby boy <laughs> that's such a great line reading by by Ray Fiennes or when someone says um, you're a straight shooter or something like that. It goes, <laughs> I, I've never been accused of that, my dear, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like there, there's so many great little one lines like that. But what I think doesn't work that doesn't work for his films where I'm not as big of a fan of it's the drama isn't there. I'm not connected to that. Like, there's this aspect of Saoirse Ronan's character, Agatha. There's this really nice love story between Zero and Agatha where they meet. They're both kind of, you know, people of low class, working, menial jobs. One's a lobby boy, one's an assistant to a prominent baker, things like that. Um, and they have this very tender love story where they're not really supposed to be together, but they get the approval of the, the people above them sort of thing. And then they get married and then it's just, and then she died a few years later. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where's the connection to that? Like, Saoirse Ronan's such a great actress. Like, why was she just given this basically fluff-off ending for her where it's just completely disregarded of, of what she could bring to the table? Well, was this before the big, like, Saoirse renaissance? Like, before she became such a big deal? I, think, uh, I feel like this was on the cusp. Yeah, like, obviously she'd still been an Oscar nominated actress by this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let's see putting it in contention, you know? Yeah. I guess it was kind of a bit of her down years. She had done Hannah three years earlier. It was still a year before she did Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, three years before lady bird, things like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, that's tough because she still, she still was given a pretty prominent 
role for this. And she's she's given a lot of significance, especially her having a, a birthmark that shaped like Mexico on her face, which is a very weird <laughs> thing that they, they, they both don't really explain and sort of explain. And it's just sort of there. And I don't really know. Um, yeah, I remember when we first watched this movie, I, we saw it in theaters and I came out, I was like, it was okay. And I, f- I felt like everyone was raving about it. And so I think I rewatched it before the end of the year when I was prepping my end of the year best of list. And I was like, yeah, it's still just okay. Yeah. I remember seeing it and remembering liking it quite a bit. And then upon rewatch for this podcast, I was like, you know what? Yeah, it's just okay. It's hilarious, but it's not one of my favorites. It's also sort of the start of Anderson really doing this very intricate you know, uh, a criticism of him is sort of like these dollhouse films. And one thing that I noticed, I, I saw someone talking about, is moving away from real physical sets and doing everything on sound stages. And him doing stuff on sound stages allows him the ability to control every aspect of everything. You know, he can, he always can, you know, center his camera perfectly and move his camera along a dolly and have sort of stuff like that. And you'd always flirt with sort of these things, you know, the the ship scene in Life Aquatic when they're showing the different rooms or the train scene in the Darjeeling Limited when they're showing the different mm-hmm. carts and things like mm-hmm. that where you can kind of blend that in with the actual real stuff that's going on. But here, starting in Grand Budapest and a bit of a criticism I have with the, the, the French Dispatch is it basically removes the real world completely. Yeah. Everything is so artificial, mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. artificial. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. And maybe that just sort of takes away from some of the charm, some of the heart, because it's not grounded in reality. It's all artificial. It's all fake. Yeah. No, I would definitely agree with that. It's something I didn't actually think about. But there is like several moments in the French Dispatch that reminded me so much of different aspects, including that, um, what were they doing? They were showing like a... um, a plane or something in French dispatch. And it's basically exactly the same as the Belafonte mm-hmm. where you get that like cut in half mm-hmm. dissected ship or plane, whatever the vehicle is and the different rooms and you go room by room to kind of look at them. And I was yeah. like, Oh yeah, this is, we're, we're recycling some ideas here now. Yeah. Yeah. That, I feel like that's kind of happened a few times later on in his career. But let's move on. We've got number seven, Isle of Dogs, which came out in 2018. San Japan, Isle of Dogs follows a boy's odyssey in search of his lost dog. This is Anderson's second stop-motion animated film, and this time it's set in the world of Japan. It's this sort of uh, feudal war-era story of cat lovers versus dog lovers and the different dynasties that be and how over centuries the cat lovers uh, were waiting in the shadows and are now at the ability to exile all the dogs off of this island that they're in, this prefecture that they're in, and ship them off to a garbage dump island where they can all presumably die off or do whatever they want sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you've got these... the all these different dogs who are who are there and this little Japanese boy flies over in his little prop plane and crash lands as he's looking for his dog and they try to find the dog that uh, was his 
and they sort of go on a bit of adventure as the humans in over in real Japan are trying to get him back and destroy all the dogs sort of thing. So it's, it's a bit of a convoluted story. It's not really once you're watching it, um, but it, describing it definitely sounds a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah. An interesting thing that was a bit of a criticism and one that is interesting because I don't know how warranted I agree with this criticism is all the humans speak in English with the exception of there's a few English, you know, American performers. You've got, um, they all speak in Jap- Japanese. Yeah. Francis McDormand who plays a, uh, a translator and Greta Gerwig who is a foreign exchange student in Japan, but none of the Japanese is subtitled. So every once in a while, there'll be, you know, the interpreter pops up and will basically do a live interpretation of it and, and say it in English. Or sometimes the narrator will come in and sort of recap what's going on. Narrators are obviously an important part of the Wes Anderson world. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is, this is an interesting one. Do, do you feel, I guess, warranted this idea that, you know, the, the Japanese people are maybe side shafted a little bit and you've got Greta Gerwig who is basically the the white savior of them do, do you agree with any of that I mean I can I can see where someone's coming with that saying that like the white girl or the American is coming in and saving the day I personally liked that all the Japanese characters only spoke Japanese and there was either an interpreter or they had like a little um machine that like spit out interpretations mm-hmm. that was going on, or there was like a little ticker tape thing that was happening in, in all the assemblies that were giving you in the English. And it says at the beginning too, that all the dogs woofs have been translated into yeah, English, which is, which is hilarious. amazing. So it's like, Oh, that, they're not actually speaking English. They're, yeah. they're woofing, yeah. but you just don't hear it. It's all translated already for you. So I thought that was cute. Um, I do wish, because I feel like Frances McDormand's character, I think she was supposed to be Japanese. And so I kind of wish that it had been a Japanese um, performer, like voice acting. I don't know. Character. Her, her character's name is Interpreter Nelson. Okay. Maybe she's so, not. She just kind of looked Japanese to me. And maybe that's racist on my part. Not maybe maybe she was supposed to be like a half Japanese person who's, who spoke both English and Japanese. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, it's, it's not super clear about what who her character is other than yeah. they're an interpreter. Um, so I liked that 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 was the the um the way that it was done but i do i don't know where i lie because you you, you kind of have two sides you have the the boy who's who's gone over to search for his dog and he's fighting on trash island and then you have her um in japan part of the student union protesting um and so I feel like there is two halves of the hero mm-hmm. in this movie. So it doesn't bug me as much, but um, I'm also white myself. So I can't really, I, I don't know if I have the right to say if it's wrong or not. The first time I watched this movie, I, I liked it, but I don't think I loved it. Uh, but watching it this time, I really did love it. I, there was a lot more heart in this movie that I think I was giving it credit for. You know, lines like, I'm going to butcher it where he says, why would, why would I help this, this boy? And the response is because he's a 12 year old boy and dogs are their favorite thing or something like that, where it just kind of like really tugs at the heartstrings where like, 
you really feel that like I, I remember what it was like to be a young kid dogs were the you know the coolest thing in the world yeah, and still when, are <laughs> and when they give you affection you you like your heart just sort of melts and sort of thing like that yeah so I, I there's a lot of sentimentality to this and I guess I guess we can sort of talk about it a little bit how would you compare the animation between Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox do you have a preference for for one or the other because they're similar but not they're, super similar yeah they're similar and i think we kind of talked about this a little bit after watching isle of the dogs but i love the um artistic what would you call it just the visual of fantastic mr fox more than isle of dogs isle of dogs i think is technically a better uh stop motion film and everything is really crisp and it's really uh, beautiful and well done, especially that like sushi scene, which is amazing. But I like the more rough, kind of more storytelling esque um, visual of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Anderson doesn't mind including sequences that are not integral to the story. And sometimes it could be a single shot, sometimes it could be an entire sequence, much like the sushi sequence, where Yes, it plays an important part where it's basically showing where they're poisoning uh, one of the scientists. And so you need to see that they're replacing the wasabi with poison. But they don't need to show you the entire sequence of how a sushi master works. And it's done so well and so realistic. Uh, It's just so interesting. It's the same thing where there's another sequence of showing a sumo match. That doesn't need to be there at all. That could be something going on in the background. But they really take their time of showing you how the sumo match actually plays out and what goes on with it and and, and all the editing detail. And that's something I'm, I'm always impressed with Wes Anderson between his two animated films so far. The care that he takes to craft something like Grand Budapest Hotel and his other films, Darjeeling Limited, Life Aquatic, things like that, where they're so intricate. He takes that same uh, intricateness and yeah. brings it to his animated films as well. And that's that's really something I appreciate. For sure. I Stop motion is probably my favorite uh, kind of animation to watch. I absolutely love it. And it's like a dream of mine to actually work on a stop motion film. Or short, maybe. We'll start with a short. <laughs> but um, yeah, so like I super appreciate that his animated films take the same um, approach to detail and execution that he does in all of his live action. Dog flu sounds suspiciously a lot like COVID, doesn't it? A little bit. You know, transferring from animals to human and some of the side effects, obviously it's very much exaggerated in this film, but uh, it really like watching. I'm like, yeah, this sounds a lot like what's going on with COVID right now, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. If just before we move on, I want to like shout out to there's the main dog voiced by Brian Cranston, but then he's got like his buddies, which I think make the whole film for me. They're just hilarious. And there's one, I think it's Jeff Goldblum, who's like, "Did you hear this rumor? <laughs> like at anything they're talking about? Did you hear this rumor?" And at one point near the end, um. I think it's Bill Murray's doc. He's like, where do you hear all these rumors? <laughs> and it's just like so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my last thing I want to point out, one of my favorite gags is there's this one dog called Oracle who has visions, uh, but in reality they just know how to watch TV. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I love that one. Yeah. All right. So we will move on now. Coming in at number six, we have Rushmore from 1998. What's the secret, Max? The secret? 
think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. We're putting you on what we call sudden death academic probation. Could I see some documentation on that, please? Did you invite that kid to your party? Max Fisher. Come on, Dad, there's gonna be girls there. I'd rather die. Clear head out of your which is about a teenager at Rushmore Academy, falls for a much older teacher, and befriends a middle-aged industrialist. Later, he finds out that his love interest and his friend are having an affair, which prompts him to begin a vendetta. So this is basically like the coming-out party for Jason Schwartzman, where I don't know how this works out, but he plays a very young teenager in this movie, Mm -hmm. and then it seems like only a couple years later, (laughs) he was a fully formed adult with a mustache. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I it always every time I see, I'm just like, but wait, how old was he? And when how was old, this? Made? How old was he when Rushmore was made? Uh, let me look this up. You you talk about what you like okay. about this movie. Okay, first of all, this was my second film into the Wes Anderson universe, and I loved this too, especially because of Sourceman and Bill Murray. This is this is when I started jumping on the Bill Murray uh, bandwagon and haven't looked back. But um. I think they're just so committed to their characters and it's so amazing. And the intro sequence where you learning all the different clubs that sportsman is part of, that's just so Wes Anderson to me. You get these like little vignettes, these like quick action shots and the, you know, the the characters like in the center or slightly off center and you see all the stuff going on behind him. That's what makes a Wes Anderson scene to me. Um, and that's always stuck with me, that beginning sequence. And I just love the way each three of these characters interact with each other, the the sadness in each three of them, and the pain and the love that they all have for each other is so nice and so like heartwarming. And I love the progression of friendship to hatred to acceptance uh, by the end of it. It's such a good arc. Um, I really like this one. So to answer your question, this was... Uh, Schwartzman's first film role and he was 18 when it came out so okay. he probably was a little bit younger when it came out and it's interesting you know he did some other stuff that you may or may not have seen he was one episode of Freaks and Geeks uh, he was in a Richard Linklater movie called Slackers but he really didn't start popping up in stuff that was recognizable until 2004 in I Heart Huckabees and then 2005 with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Bewitched Shop Girl stuff like that which is about seven years later so that's why, I guess, you know, going from 18 to 26, 25, that really allows him to age without us really noticing because mm-hmm. he, yeah, he basically just goes from this, you know, very pimply, fresh-faced <laughs> teenager to this fully formed, mustachioed man that we know today. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't, he hasn't seemed to have aged since Not really. that, like, introduction to us. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't really know how that works. <laughs> um but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. This this movie this movie is an interesting one because it has some of the most heart in all of his films. Mm-hmm. You know, I think specifically of the introduction between Bill Murray's uh character with Jason Schwartzman's dad is might be one of the yeah. saddest scenes. Yeah. yeah. Where Jason Schwartzman Max, his character, spends so much time sort of disowning that his father is just a barber. And he says that he says like he's a brain surgeon or something like that. Mm, yep. uh, and he tries to downplay that even of like, oh, you know, he's just a, a, a brain surgeon. Like it's, it's nothing fancy sort of thing like that. And 
Bill Murray plays this rich industrialist, and so he's convinced him that his dad is his brain surgeon. And then finally, when he's accepted who he is as a person, and he introduces him, and he goes, this is my father, Bert, and he's a barber. Would you like to get your hair cut? And it's just like, he, Bill Murray doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to call him out and be like, hey, didn't you tell me your dad yeah, was this? He no, he, uh, he understands it. Yeah. And in this, un- this is why I said earlier that Bill Murray understands the Wes Anderson drama. He didn't. He didn't need to say anything. You see the look on his face where he puts two and two together. He understands who Max was. The the shame he felt that he's you know trying to go to this rich private school that he has a bit of an imposter complex going on where he feels like he can't. He doesn't belong with all these rich people, so he needs to overcompensate. And it just all sort of flows in. And Seymour Cassell, who plays his father, you know, rest in peace, Seymour Cassell is just such a great so performer. And he yeah. show, he pops up in a couple of Wes Anderson's early films. And I would have loved to see him continue going on if, if he was still with us because he just he has such a, a life and a personality that, that I think is missing from some of Wes Anderson's current films mm-hmm. that he really brings because he, he really grounds a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, I would also say this is maybe one of his crueler films when – the prank war between <laughs> Max and Herman is escalating. It gets really dark. Like he cuts, he cuts his brake. He cuts his brake lines mm-hmm. and he brings bees into a hotel and he pipes them into a hotel. Like thinking about what are the, the ramifications of doing something like that, that entire hotel would need to be evacuated and fumigated. Yeah. I think it's just, I think it's poignant though. Like when you're I mean, I was never a teenage boy, but I, I think I can, you know, draw the similarities between being a teenage boy and a teenage girl when someone you love you don't feel that back they love your best friend or who you feel is your best friend that hatred because you're so jealous first of all and angry i can see like yeah you're gonna act like a child because you are a child and it's gonna get like it's gonna escalate and get worse and it does Yes, um, and and sort of right from the get go with with Bottle Rock and continuing with this is we really see Anderson's obsession with man children that is is really sort of typified by by Bill Murray and a lot of his films of these uh, Arrested Development men who, despite the fact are in their you know forties, fifties, sixties, whatever age these adult men are in. They have the maturity of children. And then you have, on the flip side, Max, who is this teenager who tries so hard to act like an adult, but really is just as much of a child as as Bill Murray's character is in this, who also might be one of the saddest characters in all of Wes Anderson's film. You know, you feel like he's on the verge of just killing himself in any moment. Yeah, I love the scene when he's at his son's. The birthday, birthday party, party and <laughs> he's just drinking and smoking, smoking and decides to jump into the pool from the diving board whilst still smoking a cigarette with a just, drink in his hand. Yeah. Cannonballing into the deep end and just like sinking to the bottom. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a movie I, I, I really sort of like, and it's interesting. Also one thing that I, I found to connect it once again, back to ball, um, alive aquatic is uh, Jacques Cousteau plays an important, mm-hmm. integral part mm-hmm. of this. And it's it's not hard to imagine that Anderson doing research into Cousteau, being like, hey, this is kind of an interesting guy. I bet you I can make a movie about him, uh, which may have led to the inspiration to something like Life Aquatic. I can definitely see that. Yeah. Okay, so moving on, in our number five slot is The Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. 
The eccentric members of a dysfunctional family reluctantly gather under the same roof for various reasons. This, you know, I mentioned how Grand Budapest was maybe Anderson's mainstream breakthrough. I would say the Royal Tenenbaums was probably his indie breakthrough. Yeah. That was the that yeah. was the one a lot of people point to as really discovering him. It was his third film, and it has it's it's the first time he sort of uh, gathers this really large ensemble cast. You know, it's going to be a theme again. It stars Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, Danny Glover, Bill Murray, Alec Baldwin as the narrator, and then a few other more smaller characters played by different people, usually recurring performers in the Anderson films. But still, that's a that's an incredibly stacked cast. Mm -hmm. And this is this is such an interesting one because it seems so out of time. You're not sure exactly when this movie takes place. It sort of seems like it's like 1970s, but yeah. also it's clearly taking place in the future. And it's also maybe a little bit of it happens that when these it's it's about this rich man who has three young prodigious kids who then grow up and resent him and hate him sort of thing. But it seems like everyone is sort of stuck in this era of when these kids were young, possibly the late 70s, early 80s, where they're stuck in fashion and everything else that they do, including smoking cigarette brains that no longer exist. Yeah. And as they got older, they're all just sort of stuck in that same time period. Yeah. And no one changes at yeah. all during that time period. Uh, this, this, is a, this is sort of a, a, a sad one also. It is, yeah which is a bit of a common reoccurring theme of him. Um, how do you feel about uh, the three children played by uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, and Luke Wilson? Um, I think that it's great. I think it was excellently cast as well. I think they play their characters really well. Um, and they're each super sad in their own way and have their own issues that they're working through. Um and they just they just do it so well. I love Ben Stiller with his his two kids and how protective he is of them since the passing of his wife and how overbearing he can be and Luke Wilson who is just incredibly sad um as well as Gwyneth Paltrow who also is incredibly sad. She's like harboring her own feelings and chain smoking in the bath and watching TV and just ignoring her husband and everything else around her. Um, I love the way that these three characters were meant to be something greater than what they actually turned out to be. And that's what they're kind of struggling with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. That's, it's a movie that I think maybe doesn't match the sum of all of its parts, but individually is very interesting. We're sort of in this crossroads where before this, you had stuff like Rushmore, which was so deeply personal and, and rooted in, in real sadness and tragedy. And then later on, we get these more intricate, you know, um, how would you say, like um, uh, dollhouse production sort of thing. And it's sort of, a, sort of splitting the difference. You can really tell this is a sort of a before and after for him. Um, obviously, things kind of went way ops in the in the other direction but it, it really seems like this is him sort of playing a little bit using this house this giant house mm -hmm. that the Tenenbaums live in as sort of the start of his you know literal dollhouse because the Tenenbaum house is kind of like a dollhouse yeah. the way it's set up mm -hmm. and it's it's very interesting um would you say anyone in the stack cast sort of really stands out for you as far as a performance wise well I mean Jane Hackman is amazing he's always been one of my favorites and I think he does 
so well in this. I love the way he delivers his lines and he's like, I'm dying. And Angelica Houston starts crying. He's like, okay, actually I'm not dying. <laughs> and he gets slapped. And it's like, he just delivered it so well. Like you would believe anyone who said it that way. And yeah. he, he doesn't seem to have any kind of guilt or um, regret of anything that he says. He just says whatever comes to mind and whatever he wants. And he deals with the repercussions in the same way. He's like, okay, that didn't work. So I'm just going to move on to the next thing. So I really, really like him in this. Um, but I feel like everyone does such a good job in their roles. I think Angelica Houston's also great in this as a mother and someone who's, you know, separated from her. She's separated or divorced. I guess she's divorced. Well, they never actually got they, a real divorce. They, they were only okay, separated. Okay. Yeah. But she's moving on to like Danny Glover, who I think is really great in this also, who plays a really sweet guy. Um, and I, I like the relationship that they have. I find it really endearing. Um, but I also love that everyone in this, um, movie, each character has their own book of some kind. Every mm. single one of them has written a book. And I think that's hilarious. And that's there, you know, these types of people exist where their circle, whatever they do, that's their only their circle. So this, if you're an author, Oh, I only talk to authors mm-hmm. or if you're whoever, you, whatever you might be. Um, so it just feels like very that circle and that's why they're all together and that's why they're all still friends and, and still have relationships. It's just this bind that they've all written something and they feel that they're the, um, expert in something. Mm -hmm. Outside of maybe life aquatic, I would say that this is the best movie for Halloween costumes of Wes Anderson's films. Oh yeah, definitely. Like who hasn't seen a Margot or, uh, Ben Stiller and his sons, uh, even Owen Wilson as, as friend Eli cash has a very, uh, iconic look with his fringe jacket sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, there, there's, there's so many good looks in this movie. (laughs) So many. All right, so let's move on to our number four film, which is Moonrise Kingdom, which came out in 2012. A pair of young lovers flee their New England town, which causes a local search party to fan out to find them. We are now getting into closer to the territory where there are less real sets. Obviously, this takes place on an island, a real island um, in New England, and you see a lot of outdoor stuff, but there's so many intricate made up sets and things like that, that we really sort of get to see his, his influence going into something like grand Budapest hotel and French dispatch where, where you see it's so, it's so easy to see the natural progression in a lot of his films. You see, you see the way he starts on bottle rocking or like, okay, I understand what you're doing with the drama and the comedy. And then it leads into Rushmore and you see how that sort of evolves a little bit. And he starts bringing on more styles, like his intricate, stuff and the slow-mo and all that sort of stuff and all of his needle drops and then it goes into uh royal tenenbaums and you see it even more and evolve and evolve every every movie there is a clear evolution of where it was before even as animated films there is an evolution that came from his live action films especially even if you just look at the two animated films Mm -hmm. um that something like uh isle of dogs is a you know an evolution from um fantastic mr fox yeah, I would agree with that statement. Definitely, you there is a progression there. Now, this is one of your favorites. I'm I'm sort mm-hmm. of curious to get your, your your take on that. Why Why is that the case? Yeah, this is my favorite. And again, it it is the first one that I saw. And I think it's interesting. You might have mentioned to me mentioned this to me a while back that it seems that everyone who loves Wes Anderson that their favorite Wes Anderson film 
is always or usually the first film they've seen of his. And I think that kind of rings true from anyone I've ever talked to. Um, And for me, it does, because this one was the first one I saw. I think it was just kind of something like I had never seen before. The characters were so quirky. Um, The filming was so quirky. And I'm a bit of a, like, I love things a very certain way. It's got to be centered. It's got to be perpendicular. It's got to be right angles. (laughs) And so it just like ticked all the visual marks that I look for in real life, but it also turned it on its head and made it so fantastical with like these pastels and the this nostalgia that he's throwing in there too. So it's like rose colored glasses, but sad. Everything's always super sad. So there's like this weird juxtaposition between feeling this like love and this warmth from the setting and the colors, but then the emotions and the stories are always a little more deeper and a little more sadder. I thought the kids were great in this. They were a lot of fun. Um, I love the story of these two kind of misfits who don't feel like they fit in, who find each other and, and write to each other, and they decide, let's run away, which you know kids always think is the option when they're not fitting in or something's not going right. Um, and just the way that it all, it all plans out or pans out is great. I think the music is fantastic in this. I love the way it works in with the story. Uh, I love all the characters. I love all the actors. I think it's also got some great one-liners in this. Like she stabbed him with lefty scissors or I'm going outside to find a tree to chop down. Like there's some great quotes in this one as well. Um, Or I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about is super great. And I feel like everyone should say that in their life at some point to somebody. (laughs) Um, So just all really worked for me. It was great. It was fun. It was sad, but it was also had some warmth to it. What would you say about the relationship between uh, the two young kids, Susie and Sam? Do you think it is inappropriate at all? Or your thoughts on that? Because there's a scene of them like dancing in their underwear. At one point, he touches her breast Mm -hmm. over the bra, of course. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? Look, I don't really know what age they are in this. They're probably around 13. Yeah, okay. That even rings a little older than I thought that they were. Maybe 12, yeah. Um, But look, if we're all pretending like kids don't think about that at at that age or haven't giggled at something or had interest in something like that, I think we're all lying to ourselves. And I think that the way it plays out is actually more endearing than creepy. Uh, Upon, I guess this is my third or fourth time watching this one, um, it did strike me where I was like, oh, I don't realize, didn't realize how far they went mm-hmm. um, in this movie before. But I think it's still incredibly PG. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It's interesting. I would maybe say out of all of Wes Anderson's films, their relationship is probably the most adult and mature <laughs> that he's depicted. Yeah. It's true. And I think that's funny that you say that because, I mean, all these people are acting like children and these two who are probably the youngest mm-hmm. of all his characters are acting the most adult. Cause even they're the people that the adults that they know in this film are not acting like adults at all. Yes. Yeah. I, w- I would say that's true. Uh, and we, we get some terrific smaller performances from, from people like Jason Schwartzman who shows up as a, as a camp counselor or Edward Norton as another camp counselor. I love Edward Norton, yeah. Um, Harvey Keitel is the leader of the camp group. <laughs> He's great. Yeah. Uh, Tilda Swinton is social services who, who literally flies in Bruce Willis. Is this question? 
is this Bruce Willis's last great movie? Does he have the ability to be great in another movie? What or is, his ego stopping him? What has he done since then? Um, not anything good. Uh, let's let's see. Wow, he has a lot of stuff in production. Oh my God, Bruce, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, trying to say anything of note. Um, nope, 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 nope. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Glass, 2019, but, which a lot of people didn't really care for. I mean, he's Bruce Willis. I'm sure he doesn't need to do any great film next. Coming in at number three is Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'm seven non-Fox years old now. My father died at seven and a half. I don't want to live in a hole anymore, and I'm going to do something about it. Don't buy this tree, Foxy. This is Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, three of the meanest, nastiest, ugliest farmers in this valley. You're moving into the most dangerous neighborhood for someone of your type of species. Your comments are valuable, but I'm going to ignore your advice. The cuss you are. Are you cussing with me? No, you cussing with me. Don't cuss and point at me. You're going to cuss with somebody you're not going to... Just buy the tree. Okay. An urbane fox cannot resist returning to his farm raiding ways and then must help use his help must help his community survive the farmer's retaliation. This was Anderson's first animated film. He's now done two, as we've previously stated. And it's this retelling of a rolled doll story where you've got George Clooney playing Mr. Fox, who when he was younger, he would steal from farms. He would steal chickens and things like that. And is now uh, older and is married to Meryl Streep and has a young son and he is trying to move up in the world. He's a newspaper con- uh, columnist and uh, wants to live in a nice tree house. Uh, not a tree house, but a house in a tree. Uh, I love this movie. The animation is so good. They have when they were shooting it they had fans blowing on the miniature puppets and so that way every time they would take a picture for the stop motion that the fur would be slightly ruffled it would always look slightly differently like it was actually moving around and so there's it it removes the pristine nature and then by doing so it makes it look even better and more realistic by doing so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this one's great i like this story this is the other one that i laughed out loud the most in I remember the first time I watched this, I thought it was just okay. But then upon rewatch, I really liked it. I thought it was hilarious. I love all the characters in it. Um, and I love Jason Swordsman's um, Ash. He's so super angsty and just like wants the attention from his father that he's not getting. And of course, his cousin is like super amazing at everything. We've all been there where some, you know, <laughs> someone who's like slightly better or more, but like better at anything than you are. And, uh, and again, William, Willem Dafoe's rat is everything in this movie to me with the snapping and the like jerky movements. It's very West side story, super West side story. (laughs) And I love it. Yeah. And I can definitely see West, um, sorry, Willem Dafoe doing that in real life Yeah, because like he, he embodies everything and, and I love it. Uh, you're, you're so right about the, the one liner aspect of it. Like at one point they're like, beagles love blueberries. And it's like, what, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> and of course, then they show the beagles eating these poison blueberries, which is great. Um, using the word cuss as a replacement yeah. for swearing. You cussing at me, cuss you, what you cussing at? Yeah. So it's good. like this sort of catch all swear word. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, one of my favorite visual gags is when a character is not understanding something, their eyes go into this like swirl, spiral, spiral yeah. pattern, especially um, 
Kylie, the he's my favorite actually. Yeah. yeah, he's one of the best. And every time Fox, Mr. Fox, is giving these really detailed plans, he's like, "You gotta give me a sign if you're not getting this." And his eyes just sort of glaze over <laughs> to this spiral, and he goes, "All right." It just kind of moves on from there. Um, But yeah, it's so good. Uh, I would, I would say that there's some really beautiful imagery in this specifically, you know, the waterfall sewer scene Mm -hmm. where it's as beautiful as any non uh, animated sequence that Wes Anderson has shot. Yeah. That's a great moment. Uh, But yeah, all, all this works really well. Like I, I love, I love that there's this feral, to it all mm-hmm. that they they growl they act like animals yeah. that they bring that to life and it's so good that they're able to to incorporate the realistic am, animal characteristics into these characters while also making them weirdly human at the same time yeah yeah um yeah all, all this is so good like i uh, this is a movie i i rave a ton about you know i love i love george clooney as mr fox bill murray as uh badger who is his real estate agent, I believe. Um, Wallace Wolodarski, who's Kylie, who's like uh, the the landlord maintenance guy who's always eating sardines. Uh, the three farmers, specifically Michael Gambon, doing his best like low, growly, bassy mm-hmm. voice that he brings. He's so good at, at having this like intense voice as the meanest farmer of the bunch, and, and I love that. Um, yeah, all, all, all about this movie is it's easily one of my favorite. Yeah, it's great. I think a lot of the farm scenes, uh, they remind me a lot of Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I know there was criticisms where because Anderson wasn't directing the day-to-day animation that some of the animators were a little critical of him not really being hands-on. But he really was hands-on on the behind-the-scenes sort of stuff. He basically filmed the movie with the actors, recreating the different parts in, you know, like the countryside sort of thing. Yeah. So he he was involved. It's just it's it's interesting. Animation is always sort of a tricky one when we have a non-animation animator director. I know that's always sort of like a point of contention sometimes, and and this is is no hmm. no no reason to not sort of doubt what a director does and what they bring to the table because it feels so much like a Wes Anderson movie. You, yeah. you can't, you can't, if this was a different director, it would look completely different. I'm sure there's other movies that you plug in a different director. It would still look the same. This movie would look completely different. Yeah, I agree. All right. Coming in at number two is a life aquatic with Steve Zissou. When a plan to exact revenge on a mythical shark that killed his partner, oceanographer Steve Zissou rallies a crew that includes his estranged wife, a journalist, and a man who may or may not be his son. This was the first Wes Anderson movie that I had seen, as I mentioned early on. And just for some reason, the the deadpanness of it all just really, you know, connects with me. It's so funny. Um, for my bachelor party, my best man uh, rented a movie theater, and the night after we we did all of our, our fun drinking and being wild sort of thing, we got breakfast, and he had rented the movie theater to screen this movie, and a whole bunch of people came, uh, including yourself. You mm-hmm. you came for that, and and a few other people's partners, and it was just such a great way to sort of spend, re, sort of cap off my bachelor party, where I love this movie. This movie is so great. It's, it's it's my warm and fuzzy comfort movie. It always makes me laugh, no matter how many times I see it. I always laugh. And I also forget how sad it is. It's There's really sad. Yeah. Like, 
Bill Murray is this this guy who used to be big and now he's not, and and you almost sort of feel like maybe that's Bill Murray. A little, yeah. Because in in the seventies, he was seventies and eighties. He was the funny man, yep. the the biggest draw in comedy. And then he kind of was in the wilderness for a while, and, and I feel like Wes Anderson sort of brought him back, especially starting with with Rushmore, and he's been every one of his movies since then. And and you almost sort of feel like this is a guy who used to be big and hasn't really figured out how to not be big anymore, and he doesn't know how to cope with that. Yeah, and especially after losing his friend, Esteban. Esteban, played um, by Seymour Cassell. Yeah, um, you know, he really struggles where his place is in the world, and... Uh, so I love when when Ned, his Owen Wilson, his son, comes up to him and is like, I'm your son, and he wants to take him on. There's this great moment. Um, can we spoil? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. There's this moment after uh, Ned dies, and he turns to Angelica Houston, who is his ex-wife, and says, you know, I really was going to ask if we could have adopted him. And Angelica Houston just says, Steve, he was an adult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. like so good. He's just searching for something, a meaning to redo his wrongs and to find what he needs to do in order to move on and accept where he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love the rivalry between Bill Murray, Steve Zissou, and Jeff Goldblum's Alistair Hennessy. The two of them work so well together where you just, you you can you could see they're they're both guys from a similar era of seventies and eighties filmmaking where they were huge stars and now no longer are, and, and Jeff Goldblum has definitely become a bit of a caricature of himself in in yes. the last you know five ten years, yeah. but in this he's he's great as this sort of like you know over the top flamboyant guy who uh, overshadows Bill Murray at every chance he can get, but he does it in a way that he makes you think that he isn't doing it, but really he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, so I always, I always love that. Yeah. Um, every time great. I see him pop up, he, he's, he's great in Wes Anderson films. Mm-hmm. My favorite in this one is Willem Dafoe. I feel like I keep ringing my little Willem Dafoe bell, <laughs> um, but he's so good in this. And I love when Ned puts him on the new flag and he's trying to tell Ned how much he loves it. He's like, no, you don't understand. You put me with the dolphin. That means so much to me. And, and his, the, like the best line, and he's like, why am I always on the B team? But just, you're the leader of B team. He wants to be Steve's right-hand man. And then Ned comes in, and, and of course, Steve's more interested in Ned, and he just feels kind of left out. You always see him in the background of every scene. He's watching everything they Lurking do. Lurking around corners. Lurking, and then when there's like a handshake or some sort of uh, partnership relationship happening between him and Ned. You see him in the background doing the same gesture as if yeah. it's him in that place. And so, so good in this. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's not even that it feels like it's a partnership. He, at one point he says, I always considered uh, you and Esteban to be like my dad. And that yeah. like yeah. really like <laughs> throws Bill Murray off. Cause he's, cause he has made sure very clear during this entire movie that he never wanted to be a dad because he didn't like his dad. And so, like, just being like, uh, no, <laughs> it's fine because Willem Dafoe is quite old. <laughs> like, <laughs> his brother. Yeah. He, he, like, he, like, in this movie, he definitely looks significantly younger than Bill Murray. Bill Murray looks kind of old and haggard. He's got the gut going on. He's losing his hair. And, and Willem Dafoe is very fit and probably has his hair dyed to make him look a little bit younger Maybe, yeah. and stuff like that. But in reality, they're pretty close in age. Yeah. I love his little <laughs> short chart, yes. a little pom pom on the end of his hat. So cute. 
Um, but I love the world building in this one. I think it's so fantastic. And this is where you start seeing like all the um, like claymation animals that are brought into this real life and um, all the different seascapes that are happening and all the underwater stuff is really great and really fun um, and kind of brings you into that like magical world of a child seeing the sea and the ocean and all the things inside of it, which is, which I think also plays out super well in that really heartwarming and sad moment where they finally come across the uh, jaguar shark mm-hmm. and they're just so taken by its beauty. They've been searching for this thing and they want to kill it and they want to like avenge Estevan. And then they, Bill Murray finally sees him and he's like, he's, he's so beautiful. And all he can say is like, I wonder if he remembers me. Oh God, that's going to make me cry. Yeah. It's just <laughs> such a like tearjerker moment and everyone puts their, their hands on his shoulder and it's just like, we're with you. And it's, it's where he finally accepts where he is knows where he has to go to move on. And it's just a, such a beautiful moment where the whole mil- movie is building to the scene and it's the perfect way to have it play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would also argue that the tour of the Belafonte is still probably one of the best sequences in all of Wes oh, Anderson's yeah. movies. That's great. Where he's like standing in front of the screen and mm-hmm. then it lifts and you start going room to room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Yeah. The, his camera work is, is impeccable in this film. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're here now. Our number one film. If you haven't figured it out by now, if you're if you're not a huge Wes Anderson obsessive, you, you probably have. You're like, why haven't you talked about this? This should be like by number ten. Wrong. Coming in at number <laughs> one is the Darjeeling Limited from 2007. I want us to be completely open and say yes to everything, even if it's shocking and painful. Do you have any questions? I do. Okay, go ahead. What happened to your face? I don't know. I guess the train's lost. What'd he say? He says the train's lost. How can a train be lost? It's on rails. A year after their father's funeral, three brothers travel across India by train and attempt to bond with each other. It stars Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman. Three guys who look nothing alike. No. You've got the super tall uh, and traditionally handsome Adrian Brody. You've got Owen Wilson is wow. And then you got the very short Jason Schwartzman with his big mustache looking like Ringo Starr. Yeah, yeah, he does. They these guys look nothing alike. And somehow we believe that they're brothers because the I buy it. the camaraderie that the three of them have together yeah. just works so well. I remember this this is the first time that Adrian Brody worked with with, with Wes Anderson. I was like, Adrian Brody in a Wes Anderson movie? I it don't seems buy super it. Super weird, yeah. Yeah. And and since then, like I said, he's probably one of my favorite parts in Wes Anderson movies. He, he just brings the humor and this is, is no exception. You've got Owen Wilson, who's this like super control freak every day. He's got these laminated uh, schedules of what they're going to do down to like the minute of, okay. And then we take five minutes to relax. It's like, you can't <laughs> plan five minutes to relax. That's not how relaxing works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you've got Adrian Brody who uh, is expecting a child with his girlfriend who doesn't know that he's on this trip he hasn't told her yet and then you have jason schwartzman as the third brother who is trying to who who has ended a relationship with natalie portman his girlfriend but they're not really broken up but they are broken up and it's kind of a confusing thing where he's very depressed all three of them are incredibly depressed and you know this definitely a a theme throughout all of wes anderson movie is every single person in all the movies are depressed yeah but 
this movie works so well. It is it is probably his most stunning film cinematography it's wise. Yeah. He really, you know, this is everything that Slumdog Millionaire isn't. It really captures the beauty of India while not shying away from maybe some of its less pleasant aspects, but still really emphasizing the beauty of it, especially rural India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I love the scenes of well, it starts off with Bill Murray trying to catch this train and he's like <laughs> going through the streets um, in a cab, in a cab yeah. and then he's running through the station. Um, and that's where you're introduced to these three brothers or actually, is it just Adrian? I think it's, it's just Adrian actually. Yeah. I think it's him because the, the other two are already on the train. They're already on the train. And of course in a foot race, who's going to win between Bill Murray and Adrian Brody. It's yeah. going to be Adrian Brody. He's just got longer legs and is slightly younger. So um, yeah, it's uh it's beautiful to see the beginning of that with the, the chaos of the city juxtaposed to these like um, sceneries that this train is going through where it's like desolate. There's no nothing there and it's just beautiful landscapes. Um, yeah, it's it's a beautiful kind of love note to India, I think. Yes. Um, all, all of this is so good. I, I love that Adrian Brody's nickname is Rubby in this because <laughs> they all have these different medical afflictions. Owen Wilson shows up, his face is completely bandaged. He's got these big dark bruises on each of his eyes. His nose is bandaged up and stuff like that. And later we get the reveal of him taking the bandages off and like because he was in a horrific motorcycle accident and so it's pretty bad. But they all have their own little conditions. And so Adrian Brody is called Rubby because he keeps rubbing his temples every time he gets stressed out about something. And so at one point I think Jason Schwartzman calls him Rubby, and they're yeah. like, "What?" He goes, like, "Rubby," <laughs> and he like mimics it, and he goes, "Oh, okay." <laughs> yeah, which is such a brother thing, you know. To oh do yeah, too. yeah. I do that with my brothers, and in fact, maybe the reason why I like this movie is because I see a lot. I have two brothers. I see a lot of the three of us in these, where mm-hmm. we'll argue and we'll bicker and we'll hate each other, but at the same time, we we still obviously love each other a lot, and uh, and and I, I sort of see that to the point where it'll be like. Owen Wilson ordering for his brothers and then when they be like, hey, don't, don't order, order for, for me. me. But then he orders the same thing that Owen ordered for him. Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> he knows him so well. Like, it's it's one of those things where it's not done out of malice. It's done because he knows what he'll like and it's true, but still. He's just trying to be efficient. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I don't I don't think I align with any one of the three of them, but I I feel like I sort of relate to all three of them. Mm-hmm. Do you think I'm, I'm any one of them more than others? Um, that's interesting. I would have to think a little bit more on that. There's definitely aspects of all of them in you. Um, but I would probably say more Adrian Brody or Jason Schwartzman more than Owen Wilson. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I, w- I would say maybe Adrian Brody. I was thinking maybe Owen Wilson and Adrian Brody. But yeah, definitely Adrian Brody. I've never seen you plan anything to a T like that. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved... The India stuff, you know, I I just mentioned it, but I love this. And it's sort of interesting where I'm watching it and I'm like, hey, I kind of get this feel of like Satyajit Ray films. Mm -hmm. And I've only seen one Satyajit Ray film and that was uh, Pother Panchali. And so like, I don't want to just be like that guy where I'm like, I watched one Indian film. So obviously this referencing India must be like that. And so I I, kind of felt a little like, am I being racist? Uh, But then... In the credits, he specifically thanks Satyajit Ray and used music from his movies. I'm like, okay, no, I understood exactly what he was going for. (laughs) I love the sequence where everything, you know, we we get this this 
hilarious comedy about three wacky brothers who can't get along but love each other. But then everything sort of comes to a screeching halt and we get this oh beautiful gosh. sequence of them trying to save some some boys drowning and one of them doesn't make it and we get this heartbreaking moment of I didn't save my boy of this. Yeah. And it, it's Adrian Brody as he's about to become a father and mm-hmm. you sort of get all this information of his fear of becoming a father and what happens if he isn't able to take care of this child and here he loses this child. Mm -hmm. And then we get this extended funeral sequence in this small Indian village where we get Irfan Khan, the fantastic Indian actor who shows up, doesn't speak a word of English. Only he only speaks in in Indian uh, in Punjab and it is, it is some of the most affecting moments and, and Wes Anderson's entire filmography. It's so beautiful. Like just the, the chaos that happens at the beginning of that scene of the boys drowning and then the realization where Adrian Brody's like, I didn't save mine. And then they go to the family, they bring this boy to them and they're all feeling down and sad and reflecting and they get on a bus and it's not until they come chase, this boy comes chasing after them. is like, you've been invited to the funeral. Mm-hmm. And of course they all get off and it's so beautiful, this funeral and this ritual that happens. And you can see the respect between the family and them for one saving the other two boys, but also just trying and being there for them. And it, it was, it's super, it's just so nice to see. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the suitcase set in this is oh one of the God. most iconic props in movies? I need one of those so bad. Like <laughs> I'm just saving up for the day that I can have a corner of one of them. Cause it's, it's they're Louis Vuitton bags yeah. done with a personalized like it looks like a almost like um animal crackers animals on them. Like, yeah, yeah. I think Mark Jacobs designed it when he was with Louis Vuitton. Maybe. I, yeah, I think I think it's a Mark Jacobs bag. But I think Eric Anderson, Wes's brothers, provided the animal oh, paintings. Cool. I I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken, maybe I'm maybe I'm not. But I I know for sure that yeah they are the the from the Mark Jacobs era of of Louis Vuitton, um because it's it's the very famous brown luggage. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Stunning. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was that was our number one film, and and we we really love this. I think this is a movie that people maybe forget about and maybe need to revisit because it kind of is the perfect dissection of the ground at Wes Anderson of his earlier work with the more dollhouse aspects when they're on the train, and then it takes this nice brief moment to breathe in and just sort of let you live in this world of, of rural India before it goes back into the Wes Anderson world. And he does it so seamlessly and, and it all works together so beautifully. Yeah, it does. It's always been upon first watch. I was in love with it. It was even at times my favorite above moonrise. It keeps like going back and forth upon rewatches and it'll always be up there for me. In order to show you how a big symphony orchestra is put together, Benjamin Britten has written a big piece of music, which is made up of smaller pieces that show you all the separate parts of the orchestra. These smaller pieces are called variations, which means different ways of playing the same tune. First of all, he lets us hear the tune, or the theme, which is a beautiful melody by the much older British composer, Henry Purcell. Here is Purcell's theme, played by the whole orchestra together. So... Let's move on to our awards now. First up, very quickly, what was your best picture? Uh, my best picture, well, is that my favorite? Yes, what was your number one movie? My number one was Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. 
Uh, for me, it was Life Aquatic. Mm-hmm. This this wasn't evident by the fact that Darjeeling Limited came in first place overall. That's just the way it worked with my very highly uh, trademarked scientific system of <laughs> adding scores together. Yeah, uh, Darjeeling but, was both our second. Yes, it correct. was. Yes, Life Aquatic was number two overall. That's my number one. Moonrise was number four overall. That was your number one. What was your number? You like you just said number two for both of us was Darjeeling Limited. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it ended up in first place. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Best Supporting Actor. Let's start with that. Best Who do you have? Supporting Actor. This was really hard because I feel like there's so many. Well, because a lot of Wes Anderson's films are ensemble. You mm-hmm. could consider Anyone. probably 90% of characters in yes. Wes Anderson films as supporting. And since we'll get into this discussion a little bit uh, later or in the very near future, most of them, I would say, again, 90% of them are male. There's, the, there's just a plethora to mm-hmm. choose from. Um, I almost, I'm going to give a runner up just because I want to talk about more of them. My almost winner was Willem Dafoe in The Life Aquatic. Because like I said, hilarious. He had some great moments, great screen time. His accent, just the way he carried himself, his movements were hilarious. Um, but I eventually gave it to Ed Norton from Moonrise Kingdom. I think he helped move the story along. I think there was an evolution to his character. I loved his delivery of his lines and the way he interacted with the kids and his commitment to finding Sam and being in his corner. Um, I thought his character was great and he really played it really well. Okay. I also decided to do runners-up as well. And my runner-up is Jeff Goldblum from The Life Aquatic. Mm-hmm. I, I loved his his suave, flamboyantness nature. It just really made me laugh. And, and every time you know, he, he showed up, like later on when he's like, oh, you come to rescue me. Like they weren't there to rescue uh, him sure. at all. <laughs> I just love that. Um, or when he's like, "We were terrible. We were both terrible husbands." Like that. That sort of realization he has, and he sort of lets his guard down and lets he just is a normal person. Love it. But my winner is your runner-up, Willem Dafoe oh, from Life Aquatic. Yeah. I I love that performance. So Willem Dafoe. Every time, every line he says makes me laugh. Like yeah. there, there's not a single moment in that which doesn't make me laugh until the very moment where you're basically in tears by some of his his line readings because he brings so much humanity. Willem Dafoe, maybe one of our most underrated actors. I think so. He's fantastic. He might not always be in good movies, but he's always great in whatever he does. 110% committed to every character. Yes. And he has such a wide range. Like, yeah. it's so interesting. In the last few years, I, I, I realized I'm like, you can't really peg down what a Willem Dafoe role is because he does a little bit of everything. Um, The Green Goblin. <laughs> that was my introduction to Willem Dafoe and I loved him in that. And and I think that was maybe like an introduction for a lot of people because he was so sinister and he was yeah. so good at that. And so over the top campy and and he maybe got typecast a little bit and being sort of like mean rude guys mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. He, he definitely has a soft side to him and we we see that with klaus yeah all right moving on what is your best supporting actress okay so this again was a little bit trickier because there's not a lot of women to choose from uh, but there's a handful and my runner-up was gwyneth paltrow from the royal tenenbaums i thought she brought a real um deep rooted sadness to her character and i think she played her incredibly well her facial expressions again the way she held her body um everything she did was really great and fantastic and i love that she was the the adopted kid and you could tell that from the way that she played that character as well but i actually went 
this was surprising to me, but I went with Tilda Swinton from the French Dispatch. Oh. Which is funny because that was she was the one in um the the story that I liked the least, but she was my favorite part of that story or of that article or vignette. She was hilarious the way she delivered lines, the lines that she did deliver. Um, the way she's like dirt, like directing her attention to the, the slides, but also talking about them and talking to the audience and, oh, that slides of me. And she, <laughs> like everything she did was so amazing and so Tilda Swinton. It was perfect. And if she hadn't been in that particular uh, storyline in the French Dispatch, I would have been totally disconnected from the story. Mm, interesting. Okay. Uh, my runner up is also Gwyneth Paltrow from the Royal Tenenbaums. I'm, I'm normally not a big Gwyneth Paltrow fan, but uh, I do quite like what she does with the character uh, because it's very much not Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm-hmm, yes. Uh, and then my winner is Kate Blanchett from Life Aquatic. So mm-hmm. back-to-back Life Aquatic wins. Shocker. I, I, uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things where I love that movie, so of course I, I hold a special place in my heart. After that... Um, you're kind of getting into some very small bit parts for, for mm-hmm. women as, as we're going to continue to discuss where I, I really like Tilda Swinton in that. I like her in um, Moonrise Kingdom as well, but it's maybe sort of along your lines with your best supporting actor role, who is sort of progressing the story. And maybe yeah. that's why I went with Kate Blanchett because she is such an integral part of that story. And I would say that some of the men in smaller parts have more substantial stuff where they're yeah. more memorable in their smaller yeah, roles. Totally. Like something like Willem Dafoe in Fantastic Mr. Fox. That was something I could say as well. He's on screen for a very short period of time, but he stands out so he, much. Yeah, definitely. Um, or really quite a few of the the, the men in, in Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. I, I could say Meryl Streep for this, but eh, I don't mm. think she really did enough to really warrant a, a win here. I think anyone could have played that character a little bit anyway a little bit george clooney brought his his movie star charisma Mm -hmm. but meryl streep didn't bring her meryl streep there's nothing special about that yeah yeah because she's she's essentially this sort of like housewife character who's a former you know wild feral animal that now is domesticated basically Mm -hmm. and and that's basically the character yeah which i also had a bit of a problem with you know shoehorning the female character into she became a mom so she became serious so she became boring <laughs> yeah which was a little like okay <laughs> that's too real <laughs> yeah okay but moving on to our next award we've got best actor who do you have okay my runner up is owen wilson from the darjeeling limited he was my favorite of the three brothers um probably because i also um feel the most connected to him <laughs> um but also he just brought his innate Owen Wilsonness to it, but it wasn't a caricature of him. I love the way the character had an arc. I love how at the beginning he tells his brothers that he was in a motorcycle accident, but by the end of the film, you realize um, that it was, it, a, suicide it was a suicide attempt, attempt yeah. and his brothers are kind of taken aback. And it's sort of similar to that Rushmore scene where uh, Bill Murray discovers Max, what Max's dad actually does. There's no need for anyone to say anything. It's understood why mm-hmm. there was that lie and this, this realization. Um, so I thought he was fantastic in that. And his chemistry with both, both Jason Schwartzman and Adrian Brody were great. Um, but my winner is Ray Fiennes from Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't mm-hmm. know if anyone could have played it exactly the same that he did. And the way he delivers his lines and goes from 
you know, super enraged to super um, regretful and, and sorry and humble and, and all these different things, this like range of emotions that happen within like 20 seconds of each other. Um, and his physicality as his character as well is so amazing. And um, yeah, I thought it was just like fantastic. He was like probably the best part of this movie, apart from its script, which I'm going to consider the main character mm-hmm. of the of Grand Budapest Hotel. He carried that movie for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great pick. Uh, Ray Fiennes is my runner-up too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes perfect sense. Like we talked about during that segment, it was probably it's probably one of the few real true leads in, in any of the Wes Andersons because they're all such ensembles, and he really does carry the film. He he brings everything to it. What Grand Budapest Downfall or not because of of Ray Fine's performance. Really, you could say that about any of Wes Anderson's movies. None of the movies downfalls are because of the performances. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know how he manages to always perfectly cast people and that the people that he casts are able to give the line readings in the perfect way that are both funny and sad and deadpan and over the top. Yeah. And everything is just like this, this beautiful combination of everything. And, and Ray Fiennes is sort of the, the epitome of all of that coming into one person leading a film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you there. Uh, but my winner is Adrian Brody from the Darjeeling Limited. Now, this is a bit of a stretch of Mm -hmm. calling him a lead as well. Uh, Owen Wilson probably has the most screen time of the three brothers, but I would say that his and Adrian Brody's stories kind of have the biggest importance over the course of the movie, and we learn the most about them throughout the film. Mm -hmm. If you include uh, Hotel Chevalier, that's where Jason Schwartzman's the lead in that shorts that precedes the film. That's where I feel we get a lot of his character arc that sort of comes into play at the very end of the film. But without it, you kind of are left being like, does this guy even have an arc? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so it's, it's, it kind of, they kind of do him a bit dirty there, but I think Adrian Brody he bring he brings the humor in, and I never, like I said, I never consider myself an Adrian Brody fan, but he does such a great job in this role. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that. I'm happy with that pick. Great, I'm I'm glad. Uh, now to our least exciting award, best actress. <laughs> Who do you got? I, I know, and least exciting only because we had like two people to pick from, and that and that's sort of pushing it as well. Yeah. So I guess if I had to pick a runner up. Oh, I don't even know her name, but the actress who played uh, Susie. Kara Hayward. Kara Hayward. Um, she was great and fantastic. Um, but what I eventually landed on was, of course, Olivia Williams from Rushmore, because she is a true, she's like, I don't I wouldn't even consider her a lead in this no. movie, but she's the lead female character yes. in this movie. So that's just how I defaulted to her. And she's great. She's fantastic. I think her chemistry with both Jason Schwartzman and with Bill Murray are amazing and next level. Um, and also her character is super sad and you understand the the rationale between uh, or behind every one of her actions Mm-hmm. And the reason why she has this relationship with Max and the reason why she has this relationship with um, Bill Murray, mm-hmm. it all makes sense. And and she's, she's great. Um, I don't know if she'd stand up if there was a different lead actress to pick from mm. where she would, where she would land. But I think she is fantastic in this movie. And unfortunately by default, she is my number one choice, but I think it's still warranted. Yeah. Unfortunately, they are literally the only two lead female performances. And, and with, 
Susie from from Moonrise Kingdom. It's very much an ensemble. You you can call it the Susie and Sam as the main characters because the story revolves around them. But so many other people get a lot of screen time as well. I guess if you were to like count out the minutes of who's on screen the most, they probably do mm-hmm. by a wide margin. But yeah. there's so many different stories going on that it's hard to sort of keep track. Um, she's my runner up as well. My winner is of course Olivia Williams and Rushmore. And yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said about what she's great. And, and the flip side is, yeah, if you look at, you know, who has the most screen time in Rushmore, it's first it's Jason Schwartzman, then it's Bill Murray, and then it's Olivia Williams. So she's not, she's not even the lead in that movie, really. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it would be a stretch to call Bill Murray a lead in that movie. Yeah, it's definitely the Jason Schwartzman, Max Fisher show. Yeah, and and so if you're if we're arguing that Olivia Williams is the lead, it's she's not really. Stretch, it's yeah. a bit of a stretch, but she yeah. is the the lead female performer in that movie. And and unfortunately, Wes, come on, you got to do a little bit better, man. I love you, but like mm-hmm. you got you got to write some women characters into your films, and you do a great job when you do include them. When you have yeah. people like Tilda Swinton and Frances McDormand and Scarlett Johansson and Meryl Streep, you got these great performers. Like let them do their thing you can do it (laughs) and like i'm not the kind of person i don't need male directors to write female driven stories because that feels a little phony to me sure they have a a voice to say like how they feel with female character or female maybe people that they've dealt with in their lives but i don't need like a female driven um movie by every male director so that they can broaden their uh, repertoire, but I think there needs to be more opportunities for lead females in their films to drive those stories as well. It doesn't need to be female only, or it doesn't need to be about a female, but stronger, more present, well-rounded female characters in in their films. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, there, there you go. Those, those are takes on the Wes Anderson films are 10 through one. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed rewatching all those films. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. You can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And let me know your favorite Wes Anderson films. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor, that's you, for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out.